is near And so I face That final curtain My friend I'll make it clear I'll state my case Of which I am certain I've lived A life that's full I traveled each and every highway And more Much more I did it I did it my way A snatch there of Frank Sinatra with My Way and that was the first musical choice of my guest tonight Billy McNeil. 30 years ago exactly, he became part of footballing history when he captained Celtic to victory in the European Cup, the first British side to win the honour with a team that became known as the Lisbon Lions. Does it seem like 30 years ago? It certainly does, Sheila, in actual fact. um, It it, it just seems to go on and on. Um, I remember five years ago, 25th anniversary, I I was surprised at the, the, the depth of feeling there was for the for the team and, and for the achievement then. But I thought it would have dissipated then and maybe gone into the past, but it hasn't happened. And if anything, the enthusiasm to celebrate the occasion seems stronger now than it did five years ago. So, But it does seem a long time ago, to, to be frank with you, and so many things have happened since then. But but it's lovely that, that, that people still get so much enjoyment from it and remember it so clearly. Of course, when you look at the pictures, everybody looks so young. <laughs> That's one of the problems. Never look at pictures. Um, no, you're right. It, 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 it's you know, we see a lot of each other every now and then, sort of thing, and you don't notice the changes until you look at old photographs and old pictures, and then you see them. By God, they don't half. And uh, I suppose from that point of view, it's nice. It's very nostalgic, and it's nice to look at look at yourself and your colleagues as, as young men and to try and remember just exactly how excited and how up for the whole whole occasion you were because it really was a, a fabulous achievement and um, I don't think any of us really truly comprehended what we had achieved at the time. Celtic were very much the underdogs. I mean, people don't mm. realise that now, oh, yeah. but, I mean, you'd been written off by everybody except Celtic supporters, really. Well, that's right. Um, you know, obviously Inter Milan, indeed, the, the Latins... They dominated the competition in those days and the Italians at that time had had a, a very good spell into Milan seemed almost invincible. Um, but we had an attitude of mind in the team that we always felt that on our day, if we performed well, then we weren't afraid of anyone. And we had an awful lot of strong personalities in the team, apart from an incredible amount of skill and ability, but we had real strong personalities in the team and I think it helped on the day. Um... And everything just seemed to go right. Our fans were in Lisbon ahead of us. Um, some of them had travelled by in a, in a car cavalcade, which doesn't seem an awful lot nowadays. But 30 years ago, I mean, you weren't sure your car was going to get you from the other end of Glasgow. And these people, I think, just embarked on this cavalcade and all of a sudden ended up in Lisbon. And what they had done, they had turned uh, Estoril, where we were staying, into a haven for, for Celtic because I think they had converted the locals and it just seemed, we just seemed to, 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 to slot right in. We were immediately at home when we got there and everything just seemed to go right. Um, 
It was a lovely occasion. There was a vivid contrast between the, 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 the Milan supporters and the Celtic supporters. They had these blue and black um, scarves and flags and everything, and ours, of course, were green and white. So the contrast was brilliant. It was a lovely day, beautiful conditions, and everything just seemed to be right. Did you have a gut feeling that you could do it, although the sports journalists, particularly the English sports journalists, had written you off? Well, uh, we didn't mind that because obviously we started out as the Scottish representatives and then when the English team went out, we became the British representatives. But in fairness, uh, Kenneth Wilsonholm used to travel with us and he came in for a, a hell of a lot of stick, I've got to confess that. But he was great, he was terrific and he was really helpful to the lads and, and he, he really wanted us to win because he, he had come with us and he was really dead keen that we would win and... No matter how much we we wound him up, he, he was definitely in our in our camp, and uh, obviously early in the game we gave away a penalty kick, which in actual fact helped us and settled us because we were aggrieved at the the decision. Although having looked at it on television, on sorry video so often, it was a penalty, but it meant we had nothing else to do but to go forward and to to try and get something out of the game and. The way it all happened, the, the goals came late in the game, which I think always makes it sweeter, and the whole thing just was a, a party from then on in. It was marvellous. A party from then on in, but at some point uh, somebody said it kind of went a blank at the at the end of the game because there was so much uh, hoo-ha, the fans invaded the pitch, yeah, yeah. there was a, a real sort of chaotic handing over the cup. I mean... Bobby Lennox running around to try and find his teeth well, for the official photographs. Aye, that was very serious for some of them, to be honest with you. What happened was one or two of the boys uh, used to have false teeth and Ronnie Simpson used to put them in an old cloth bonnet. And, of course, at the end of the game, a lot of us uh, were just so excited and our emotions were so high that things like bonnets were, were forgotten. And all of a sudden, we Bobby Leonard said to Ronnie, where's, where's your cap? And Ronnie went, oh, no, I've left it in the goals. Now, everything that wasn't tied down disappeared that day. As souvenirs, obviously, after the game. But lo and behold, that nobody had touched the cap, which maybe says something for the cap, to tell you the truth. But they, they, they eventually got back there, and they got in there with the teeth all intact. So somebody had, had lost a, a real souvenir. How many sets of teeth are we actually talking about? Uh, two or three, probably. Not full sets, just little bits and pieces, little plates, you know. Not mine. What are your memories of, of holding that cup above your head? Well, it's interesting. I've, you know, I think my my emotions were so high. That I've tried to remember entirely what I was thinking about after the game, and I can't. My first clear um, memories were in actual fact when we got up there and the president of Portugal was was presenting the trophy. That were the first clear memories. And I remember seeing the wives, they were sort of just down below us and things like that. But I always remember just, just the mass of, of faces looking up the way towards me. And it was on a like a platform type of thing, but there was no safety um, wall or anything at the end of it. And I was saying to myself, big man, don't go too near the edge of this or you'll be in amongst them. But that was the first clear indication I had, and it was a marvellous it was a marvellous feeling for me. But it was also there was also a disappointment, Sheila, because the rest of the lads, because of what the, the turmoil at the end of the game, they were in the dressing room. And it was only Sean Fallon and myself. And it was interesting because the Portuguese police decided that we couldn't go back the same way, go back over the pitch again. 
So they decided they would take us round inside one of the, the police cars with outriders and everything else. But before they, would, they did that, every one of them seemed to want their picture taken with the European Cup. So it took an incredible, an incredible length of time before we eventually got back into the dressing room with the rest of the lads. And, I mean, the dressing room was an absolute chaos. It seemed as though there was 100 people in there. You know, but it was it was great. I think it was just the, the whole excitement of the occasion and um, to know the realisation that, that, that we had joined the elite of European football. You know, I always remember Bill Shankly was there at the time and he, he said to Big Jock, you know, John, he always called him John, John, you're immortal. And, you know, at the time, you know, you, you, know, you say, ah, well done, Bill, nice, nice thing to say. But he was right. I mean, Jock is immortal. And, uh, you know, primarily probably because of that achievement. Coming back to Glasgow, of course, 40,000 mm. at Parkhead. Yeah. Streets lined with people. Oh, that was great. That was brilliant. Um, you know, every, you know, we came off the plane straight into to a bus. The customs just waved us through. and It was the old airport in those days, so buying. We, everywhere we went in Glasgow, it seemed there were people there. But uh, it wasn't until we got to Celtic Park that the full, the full effect of everything suddenly took place, you know, and the place was absolutely jam-packed and it was great. Wish it was tomorrow. But uh, it was nice, lovely memories, really well. Smashing. Music, more music. What will mm. we listen to now? Well, that's interesting. Um, funny enough, having talked about the team... Uh, I would like to, to, to play Bridge Over Troubled Water, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, Joe McBride, who didn't uh, play that day because he had been injured that season. Joe used to sing this, and he was a good singer. Um, maybe not just as good as Simon Garfunkel, but he was a good singer, Joe, and um, it brings back fond memories. I come, I come from Bells Hill, which in, in those days was very much mining and, and uh, steelworks. Um, changed days now. But it, it was a terrific community. I mean, nobody really had very much more than the, the next-door neighbour. Uh, my grandfather was a miner. My father was a soldier. He was a professional soldier, 22 years in the army, physical training instructor. Um, and football just seemed to be a logical thing to do. I mean... That was all we did in a spare time. The games seemed to go on all day. You went in for your dinner or whatever it was, your tea or everything, you just went back out again, the game was still going on. We're quite fortunate. I think we must have arranged it that all the dinners and all the teas didn't come at the same time, so the game never stopped. But you seem to play football all the time and uh, it was a big part of life. First Celtic match, of course, that you saw 
It was your Auntie Grace that took you. It was indeed, I My father, as I mentioned to you, was uh, was a regular in the, the army and obviously he was away from, from home for, for, for long periods. Um, and my Auntie Grace, who was a maiden aunt, but she was brilliant. I mean, she looked after me. She treated me as always something special. Um, and she said, I'll take to to see Celtic. And as it so happened, we stayed in a council house in Belsell, you know, there was four in a block, and we were above a lad called Dan Gallagher who ran the local Celtic supporters club. And uh, we went on the bus with Dan. And I remember again, it was one of these horrible days. And uh, in those days, the buses seemed to park. Well, I suppose when you're, I was only, what was I, eight years old, I think, or something like that. And uh, it seemed to be, be a, a, an incredible distance away from the ground. And we walked and we got into the, what was the old jungle. And it was the old jungle in those days. And, of course, Celtic were playing Aberdeen. And they were down 2-1. And then Charlie Tully, who was, uh, for a kid, he was a wonderful, wonderful figure, very charismatic character. He took the game with the scruff of the neck and he scored two goals himself. And Celtic eventually won 4-2. And, of course, during one of the goals... The crowd in those days used to they used to, to live, they used to move, and of course there was no crush barriers and things like that. So all of a sudden there was this big wave, and you just went with the wave. And of course, when the wave came back, Manny Grace had lost one of her shoes. And you know, I mean, it was wet and underfoot, it was sort of black, sort of a shale that was on the steps in those days. I mean, it was just, it was just really appalling when I think about it now. But there was no way we could find the shoe, and of course, Manny Grace had to. She had to hobble uh, half a mile or whatever. And I, to be honest with you, I remember as much about that as I do about the game, to tell you the truth. But it, that was my first game. Um, and it was just, just down to the fact that, as I say, my dad was away a lot. So it was Manny Grace that uh, used to take me to football in those days. And Dan Gallagher, as I say, lived underneath me. And Dan was a lovely man. The astonishing thing, he was, he was so Celtic-minded that uh, unfortunately he never saw us win the European Cup. Because he died, he died that year, and and if anybody deserved to see the European Cup being won, it was Dan Gallagher. It was lovely. Next piece of music. What will we listen to now? Well, you'll probably think I'll go back, and I'm going to choose Misty, Johnny Mathis, um, and it goes back to when Liz and I were just uh, starting to go with each other. We were very friends. The girl. In actual fact, Eleanor Cairns, as she was then, was uh, Lizzie's great pal. And we used to go out to the Cairns house and down in Clyde Bank. And we used to sit and listen to different records and things. And this one, Misty, um, just seemed to stick in it. just seemed to be part of a lovely time. Lovely, nice growing up and nice company. And it just seems pertinent to play it. Look at me. Helpless as a kitten up a tree And I feel like I'm clinging to a cloud I can't understand I get misty just holding your hand And a thousand violins begin to play Or it might be the sound of your hello 
music I hear I get misty the moment you're near My first game, in actual fact, uh, for the first team, Celtic used to, at the end of every season, Celtic would always embark on a trip to, to Ireland. Um, 1958, I'd signed in 57, and I had been farmed out, as it was the, was the vogue in those days, to, to a junior team. In my case, it was Blanter Vicks. Um, but uh, Bobby Evans was part of the Scot- Scotland team going to Sweden for the World Club Championship. There were a few other first-team players. So a lot of we younger players got, got to, the chance to, to, to go along to, to Ireland. John Jack, who was the reserve centre-half, was a Bell Cell man like myself. Um, John was injured, so I got picked to, to go along. And I played my first game for Celtic against the Bohemian Select in Dublin. Um, my second game in Belfast... Um, against a Belfast Celtic select. <laughs> and my third game was in Derry against Derry City. It was astonishing, all three in Ireland. And I did well in those games. So when the next season came came round, and Bobby Evans got injured early, very early in the season, uh, and I got uh, put in. So I suppose my first official game would be against Clyde in, in the League Cup at uh, Celtic Park. Um, and it was... I mean, it was just marvellous. It was brilliant because you just had, you you obviously weren't ready for 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 the occasion or bloodied, but it was nice that they put you in, in in those days and and it was brilliant. And I played a lot of games for the first team that first season, um, and it was a it was a terrific breeding ground. I was lucky in lots of ways when I went to Celtic. Big Jock was very instrumental in me going to Celtic, and he was in charge of the the reserve team at that time, and he was terrific. And he he, he took particular interest in. Uh, the youngsters and uh, and he was great and he was with us all the time and being a Lanarkshire man like myself um, we, we used to travel out that way out into Lanarkshire myself, John Clark and another lad called Jim Conway three of us all went in the same direction and we used to go up to Tollcross Road to pick up the, the bus after training we were part timers in those days uh, and there was, one, there was one rule that Big Jock imposed was that if his bus came first, that was fine. But if our bus came first, we had to let it go until he got his, and that was part. But it, it was good fun, and then he got a car, so it was even better then, because he used to give us a lift home. It was terrific. Um, he had a reputation for being a hard man. Was he? Could he be ruthless and uncaring? Um, I don't think he was ever uncaring, to be honest with you. Yeah, he could be ruthless. It's part and parcel of the job. And I suppose he had to be at times... But he liked to promote that, that image, but uh, I was very... He was great. In, in the early days, he was terrific. He was, he was a coach then. Um, and I think he saw that the future of the game was about developing the, the youngsters. And, and he was very good in, in that vogue. He was very good in that role. He was terrific. And he certainly took an awful lot of time and care with us. I think I was, I was kind of special. Both he and I were centre-halves. And basically, it was his influence that... that uh, that got me to Celtic. Um, but we had good experienced players as well, Neely Mawkins and Bertie Peacocks, uh, uh, Bobby Collins, the Willie Fernies. They were terrific senior professionals and they helped you with your development. Um, what about being a captain, though? Didn't that Wasn't that difficult? You have to 
Well, that, Bully, came, that certainly came later, right? Well, Persuade, I, and you're between the manager and the players. Yeah. I mean, oh, the players I, once maybe, asked yeah. you to go to Jockstein and ask for more money, and uh, he told you in no uncertain terms, which we can't repeat on no, this per- people's can't, radio no. show. No, a oh, big do. jock. Oh, it, it was murder. It was it was hopeless because you had no freedom of contract in those days. That at the end of a contract, uh, the club just offered you the minimum wages acceptable by the Scottish League, and that was it. If you if you didn't want to accept that, you sat in your backside in the stand and didn't get paid at all, and nobody really wanted that. And it was, but it was murder. I mean, big job. You thought it was his money you were asking him for. It wasn't as though it was the the club's money. Oh, it was a nightmare when it came to talking about a contract. Um, it, <laughs> you know, when I look at it, you know, then and I look at it now, uh, the, the whole game has turned upside down, and rightly so, because you know I, we were treated almost like like white slaves, um, and I think it's only natural that uh, any labourer is entitled to a fair reward for the job that he does. And to be fair, the, the team that I played with in the period I played at Celtic, the, the Celtic were more than fairly rewarded for it. But I don't think that reward ever ever came the players' way. But that was the way things were in those days. It was it was strange, you know. You had people from a working class background, um, really denying you the right of things that I think we were entitled to. But that was life. It didn't it didn't detract from the the football. Football was enjoyable. Um, it was a wonderful way to earn a living. Certainly better than working. I can assure you on that account. Um, and it just seemed to, as I say, we had that period, that ten year spell when we achieved so much and. It was just an absolute delight and a joy, and it was full of fun. We had great travels, great trips, superb, you know, superb fun, and a great crowd of lads. You know, so the whole thing was brilliant. It was a sort of magical combination. I mean, mm. all the names are there: the Craigs, the Gemmells, the yep. Old. I mean, Lennox. You could go on. That's right. Was it? And all born within thirty miles of each other. Yeah. Changed yep. days yep. indeed. Oh, it has changed days. Obviously, freedom of movement has has dictated that. Um, you know, I often wonder, had, had there been freedom of movement in those days, I doubt very much if that group of players would have stayed together for any great length of, of time. But, uh, you know, it, it was terrific in those days and we were all good in each other's company. I'm not saying we were all the greatest pals in the world, but we all got on well together. And we're a bit like the old Labour, the old Labour Party that you could fight and argue and scream in private. Nobody else was allowed to join in, and whenever you went onto the field, there was a united front that 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 suddenly came into place. And we were like that. We were very, very proud of our achievements. We're still very proud to this day. Um, and there is a bond that, that that is very evident still to this day, Sheila. That whenever we see each other and we meet each other, there's an immediate bond that people recognise. But you see, in some ways, you've fulfilled every boy's dream. Not only have you played football for your country, but you've led your club to its possibly its greatest success. Aye, aye. I've been very fortunate. I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, I, I always appreciate. And I, I think that our era of players, I think we appreciated that aspect uh, much more. We came... The bulk of those lads, you mentioned that it was a 30-mile radius. The other pertinent thing was it was very much a working-class background all the boys came from. So I think that we really appreciated the fact that all of a sudden football gave us the opportunity 
to move away from that, to not to move away from the background, but to to move into a different sphere and area, and to see things that, had it not been for the football, would never have seen, and never have experienced. Um, you know, and while we might moan and we often do about the the difference in remuneration, the thing that nobody who hasn't done it will never will never. Um, know the real feeling of elation that you get when you're standing in a winner's rostrum. And, you know, that day in Lisbon, um, that was a, a real pinnacle because, you know, the, I don't think anybody really perceived that a Scottish club could be European champions. And, and to fulfil that, that, that dream that day was something magnificent. And it's something that we still get, as I say, 30 years on people still get an incredible amount of excitement and enjoyment from. Billy McNeil, thank you very much for talking to us on the programme tonight. Yeah.